All right, well, good morning. Um, if you happen to be one of those who like to carry around your Bible, you can open it up to Philippians 3, because that's where we're going to camp this morning. But also, I want to give those of you who use your Bible on your, on your whatever phone you might use, I want to give you the freedom to do that and not think that you're texting while we're talking. Uh, so for those of you who have used your Blackberries, your iPhones, you are now released from people thinking that you're on Facebook, and you better not be on Facebook. Anyways, um, but Philippians chapter 3, uh, we're talking about this generation and, and passing on um, th- to this generation the story of God and, and, and how it works and, and what our role is in that. And so before you check out and you're sitting here going, oh, I don't have any kids, let me let you in on a little secret. When you gave your life to Christ, when you said yes to Jesus, you were not only adopted into the fellowship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but you were adopted into a giant dysfunctional family, which is represented in this room. So look around, say, hey, brother, hey, sister, hey, moms and dads and spiritual moms and dads and spiritual brothers and sisters and second cousins and all that stuff. You are connected through the story of God, through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, through what he did on the cross. We are connected, and that's the value of the family. And so please don't think because you don't have a son or a daughter of your own, there are many before you and after you that have poured into you and you get to pour into as well. And so this morning with the idea of too small to ignore and the generation that we're dealing with today is what we're going to do. But I've invited Paul through Philippians chapter three to do the speaking um, because I believe that he says something so well that if we're going to pass something to the, to this generation, it has to be of value. And, uh, and I believe that he discusses the ultimate in Philippians chapter 3. And so let's just start with Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. And you'll see it on the screen. You'll, uh, we'll always have that for you guys. Because um, I don't like when people read to me and expect me to follow along the whole time. I like to read it with them. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now before we go any further, I want to jump back just a chapter to Philippians chapter 2 where... Paul gives a description of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Here's his attitude. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. And he died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now jump back to Philippians chapter three, verse one. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now here's the deal. If your view of God, if your view of Jesus is on the same playing field as all the other moral teachers, philosopher, thinkers who came and tell you how to behave better, why would you rejoice in that? There is no rejoicing in that, but Paul has an accurate view of who Jesus is, that he is supreme over all things, that there's nothing out of his control, that through him everything was made and for him everything was made. So therefore, Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. I'm sure when the churches were like hanging out and Paul was always sending them letters, and why is he always talking about Jesus? Why Paul always talking about Jesus? 
Why Jason and Shannon and Sherry always talking about Jesus and Jazz talking about Jesus? It's like all Highland talks about is Jesus. Ain't nothing else to talk about. Safeguard your faith. That's why Paul does it. That's why he reminds people of who they are in Christ. All of his letters to the church are not, hey, this is where you're screwing up, you're screwing up, you're screwing up, you're screwing up. His letters begin and end with Jesus. Remember what you have in him. Remember what you have in him. Therefore, your life reflects that. So Paul is talking and he opens up with this amazing, I never get tired of telling you these things and I do it to safeguard your faith. The reason we talk about Jesus on a Sunday morning is... Safeguard your faith. Where are you putting it? Are you putting your trust in your own ability? Stop it. I'm safeguarding your faith when, I, when we boast about Jesus. So he continues on in verse 2, and he uses very strong words here. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. If you are new to the church and you walked in here and you're like, whoa, whoa, I walked into the wrong church this morning. Let me talk to you for just a minute. In the Old Testament, there was something that they did that to honor the Lord's commands. And on the eighth day, every Jewish child, male child, was circumcised. And it was symbolic of them being a people that belonged to the Lord. But later in the Old Testament, God makes it very clear that there will come a day when he will circumcise our hearts. And that is something that goes on on the inside that you and I cannot do. No matter how hard we try, you and I cannot take a scalpel to our sin nature. It's impossible. And so what Jesus did was he made it possible. He circumcised our hearts. When we put our trust in him, his spirit dwells in us. He has cut away that sinful nature. It begins and ends with Jesus. That is what Paul is talking about because there are people who are actually going, yeah, this Jesus thing is cool, but you still got to be circumcised. You still got to do this. You still got to do this. You still got to do this. And Paul's response is Jesus Plus, nothing is the gospel. That's what he says. That's his boast. And I love that. He continues on. Verse 3. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. So there he's addressing the spiritual circumcision that happens to our heart when we place our trust and faith in Christ. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Now, in verse 3, he says, For we who worship, that is not just talking about coming in here on Sunday morning and singing songs. We don't just sing songs together through Christ. It's part of, our, it's part of an act of worship. We respond to God's goodness through, through songs and through prayer and through you know, gathering and eating together and breaking bread together. But he's talking about the entire life worship that's mentioned in Romans 12, where he's like, present your bodies to God. This is your act of worship. So it's a moment by moment by moment thing. So my dependency on him and his finished work is worship. So moment by moment, as I'm depending on what Christ did on the cross that I can't do for myself, that's worship. That's where it flows from. Everything flows from that. And so he continues on, verse 4, Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Get ready for Paul's resume. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. Talking about the whole Old Testament stuff. He was really, really, really hardcore. 
I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. So Paul is sitting here saying to these guys who are trying to make works, make my efforts higher than Jesus. He's saying, okay, you want to play that game? Let me show you my resume. I got a works list that'll blow your mind. I'm going to post this on monster.com and watch the job offers come flying in. That's what he's saying. But I don't know if I can say this. I I, I think I can. I think that the greatest threat to this church, to the church, to the universal church, in being effective in reaching the next generation, the greatest threat to that is not outside these doors. It's inside the church. And it's this poison of moralism. It's this poison that Jesus came just to teach you to be good. It's very interesting. In this book called Unchristian, I would encourage you to read it. There are some staggering statistics in it. They surveyed um, a poll of Christian adults, and they asked them, what is your number one priority in your faith journey? What is the number one most important thing to your faith? 37% of adults answered, not sinning and being good. Discipleship, worship, Getting to know Jesus better, reading God's word, serving and helping the family grow in the faith were not even mentioned by most of them. Is it any wonder, and I want to get this statistic right, is it any wonder that 64% of teenagers today, 64% of teenagers today, and that may be some of you in this room, believe that Jesus came to earth to teach bad people how to be good? Is it any wonder that 64% of teenagers believe that? Because if 37% of adults believe that, that call themselves Christians, what are we handing the next generation? What are we handing them? That's why most teenagers believe that church is good people getting together with other good people, telling them how to be better people. That's what they think. That's what they believe. And that puts a lot of them out on the streets saying, I'm not good enough to run with that crowd. Can I tell you, none of us are. If you think you are, you best knock yourself down off your horse. Because Paul continues. It, 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 I do have to tell this story because I think it, it makes a, a very good picture. I was pulled over by an officer because I got in one of those speeding stop things and they were like hey how are you doing we're just checking everything about you and your car and we're gonna give you a ticket for something and so I was sitting in my car and they found a sticker that was expired and so I was like great thank you so much officer I really appreciate this I love what you're doing for this city you're keeping people with expired stickers off the road you know so so if you're an officer, I do appreciate everything you do. It's just, it's when it's me that I always get mad. So, um, but I'm sitting there and, and so I end up having to go to court. I end up having to go down to the courthouse. And if you have never been to the courthouse, you should go. If you have never had to wait in line to pay a fine, you should go. 
And so I'm down there with all these people in line, and I'm sitting here going, oh, I got I to gotta figure out what these people are here for. I got to know. And so I asked the person in front of me. I was like, dude, what are you in, what are you in line for? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm all excited to tell him I'm just here for a, you know, sticker. Uh, he's like, I lit up a crack pipe in front of an officer, man. Okay? I did not expect that. And he was bragging about it, and people were high-fiving, and I'm like, what are we doing? What are we doing? And I asked the lady behind me, and she was like, I uh, was, um, you know, uh, walking the streets. I'm a prostitute, and I got caught, and I have to pay a fine. And I'm sitting here going, where am I? What, is, what are we doing? And, she, and they look at me, of course, because I asked them both. They're like, so what are you in for? I killed a man. <laughs> they laughed because they were like, whatever, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're, you know. And I'm sitting here going, ah, oh, you're right. I got a sticker that was out of date. <laughs> but man, he's just trying to keep me down, you know. But I was struck. I was completely struck by this. The things that we think are little deals. I am better than so-and-so or I'm better than so-and-so. I was in the same line with people who we would look at and go, oh, they're, they're worse off than I am. I was in the exact same place. We're all level right there. We're all demanded before the judge. We are sitting there and we are all guilty. <laughs> and what we do in the church is we'll tend to go, you know what, something's better or I'm not as bad as them or I'm, I'm better off than they are or I'm not doing as bad as they are. And Paul's saying, you know what, I did better than anyone. I am more religious and strict to the law, to the rules, than anyone else on the planet. But, he continues, verse 7, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Now here's the deal. Many people, and this, I really do believe it's, it's the church's fault, we elevate these people who say they've come from this past of this just terrible situation. I was all about the drugs, the money, the sex, and the fame, and the popularity, and then I gave it up all to get Jesus. All that was garbage compared to Jesus. You don't hear too many people stand on a stage and say, it was all about my humanitarian work. I adopted 14 compassion kids. I dug four wells in Africa. I've helped clothe the orphans. I've taken care of the widows. I've done all those things. And now I count them as worthless. Not that those things were bad. But to put your faith in those things will wreck you. Will wreck you. And Paul continues... Verse 8, he says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Some of your translations may say horse poopy. Some of your translations may say dung. The point is, garbage, dung, whatever. You don't really mess with that stuff, do you? When you take something to the garbage, you're throwing it out. You don't want to see it. You don't want to smell it. You don't want to look at it. It's gone. But see, here's the deal. We live in the 21st century. And now, 
I go and buy this box to put in my backyard to throw my trash in so that six months from now I have compost to put on my garden. And I have a list of about 8,000 things that I'm not supposed to throw away that I can put in my compost. So now, every time I go to the trash, I'm going through my trash. Okay? I'm going through my trash because, you know what? No, you can't throw this away. i got to hold on to this. This could go in the compost. No, I can't throw this away. This could go in the compost. It all goes in the compost. No, but don't put that in the compost because that'll ruin your compost. I get it. I love it. I'm all for it. But this is not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about garbage. He's talking about everything that he used to count valuable. He has counted it as garbage, something he does not dig through. But wait a minute. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That goes in the comp. I'm going to dig through and keep that. He said it's all worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. Now, there is a very big difference. He could have used the word knowing about Christ, but he didn't, did he? He said knowing Christ. Let me tell you the difference between somebody who knows about Christ and someone who knows Christ. Someone who knows about Christ could walk in here on a Sunday morning and go, yeah, I know about him. I could give or take this. Jesus has just kind of affected my Sunday sleep schedule. I could be here or not. Just an option. When it comes to giving, I know about Jesus and other people can give. That's cool, whatever. When it comes to getting into a small group of, of living your life with somebody and investing in them, I, don't, I know about Jesus. I don't need that. You want to know the difference between somebody who knows about him and knows him? You no longer use the, ah, we all sin. I sin. You no longer say, we all make mistakes. Ah, I know about Jesus. No, you say, I have made mistakes. You no longer say, well, we kind of do. No, no. it becomes I need Jesus. Everything else has become worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. Very strong words, especially for a man who seemed to have it all together on the outside. But it's very interesting to me that Jesus' harshest words were reserved for the religious people who had an outward appearance of righteousness. It's very interesting to me. Paul continues, verse 9. Counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ. Again, not know about I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. It's very interesting because when you and I are born into this life, we're born physically alive but spiritually dead. I don't think we understand that. Because if we did, we would not think that this life was about good behavior. And that's what the world will want you to walk around with. It's just about being good. No, it's not. It's about being forgiven of sin and being made alive in Christ. That is why he came. Jesus did not come so that you could have some sin management mechanism. He didn't come so that you might behave better. He didn't come so that you'd be a good person. He came to make you what was once dead, fully alive. He came to take you 
an unrepentant enemy of God to forgiven, redeemed friend of God. Very big difference between someone who behaves and someone who does not. Paul uses some great words for that. In verse 12, this is where he... Paul kind of lightens up a little bit here. Verse 12. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ first possessed me. Do not miss the first possessed you. Because what we will do is we'll go, well, I got to press on to be as perfect as Jesus. That is not what scripture says. Scripture says that you are made perfect in him. Scripture says that we press on to get that, that final goal of looking like Jesus because he first possessed me. It's not about how good can I be or how bad can I be, how far can I stand from him, how close can I stand. It's, it is about what Jesus and Jesus alone accomplished on the cross. That's what Paul's saying here. Now, here, here's where he continues. He says, <clears throat> no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. This is not just Paul's call that he's talking about. This is all of our call to look more like Jesus because of Jesus. I don't look more like Jesus because I think I'm able to. It's very interesting. Watchman Nee, great author, he wrote a book called The Normal Christian Life, and I would encourage you to read it. But all it does is it walks you through the book of Romans. And he says a very interesting statement. He says that what, however we approach God, however we do, whether we've had a good day or we have done terrible things that day, we approach him the same every time, and it's through the blood of Christ. So if you're like, oh, I had a great day today, I'm going to approach God. You can't just walk to him without going through the blood. It's the blood of Christ that makes it possible to walk up to him. If you were like, man, I am the lowest of lows today. I did some things that are so messed up. I did everything wrong that I possibly could today. I need to get to him. I need to get to him. You know how you approach him? The same way, through the blood through the blood of Christ, through the finished work of Christ. That's how you approach him. He continues on. And, and, I, and I do want to say this. I have had in, in Nashville and here just conversations with parents. It's just really about, I just need, I want my kid to behave. I just want him to behave. I, I mean, the number of times I heard going on trips before and, and people with parents would come up and say, you know, I'm, I'm praying for the spiritual awakening in these kids' lives. I'm praying that they would repent. I'm praying that they would come to know Jesus. I'm praying that they would see him for who he is. And then parents just say to me, just, just make sure my kid behaves. Just make sure my kid behaves. Now, if you're one of those parents who have walked through the, just, I'm just all about behavior. And that's what you're passing on. Forget about the past and press on to what lies ahead. Maybe you're a person who's been elevating yourself as a works-based person. I do a bunch of good things. I do a bunch of good things. But now you're saying those good things are worthless? Well, if that's what you're worshiping, yes. Forget about the past. Press on to what lies ahead and what you have in Christ Jesus. 
Don't stay put. Keep moving towards him, looking at him, seeing him, treasuring him. Because when we begin to treasure him, not with just what we say, oh, it's good for you to know Jesus, but we treasure him with the way we live and the way we invest in people and the way we give and the way we talk and the way we interact, the way we move in the city, a generation will get it. But a generation will reject Christians in name alone. A generation sees right through it and knows you don't mean what you're talking about. Now, I know there's some parents that may be sitting in here and some families that are sitting in here and you have. You've loved Jesus in front of your kids and they've just wandered. They're running. They don't care. You don't need to be carrying the guilt of failure or any of those things that you might be walking in. You don't. It's not yours to carry. You can seek Jesus on their behalf for the rest of your life. But it's Jesus who ultimately draws them. Walk in that. Be free from the guilt and the shame that you may be feeling. Forget about the past. Press on to what's ahead. Verse 15. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. I love how Paul's like, you know what? You guys are arguing. God will make it clear to you. Just, just deal with that. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. Verse 17, dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. Can I tell you that there may be many enemies of the cross sitting in a church on Sunday morning? You don't got pitchforks, and you're not burning religious people at the stake. But do you know that you can find yourself as an enemy of the cross when you elevate anything but the finished, accomplished work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection? Above that, you become an enemy of the cross. It's boasting in works that cannot save. And I know for some of you, you're like, but good works, good works. That's what I, all, I've, all I've ever learned is earn it, earn it, earn it. That's why grace is scandalous. The definition of scandalous is something that spits in the face of correctness. The world says, you do good, you earn. You do bad, you earn. Your identity is in what you do. That's what the world says. But the grace of God shatters all of those pictures of correctness. The grace of God says you don't get what you deserve. You are right before God through faith in Christ. He no longer sees you as guilty because the guilt was laid on Jesus. It's not that he swept your sin under the rug. It's he fully dealt with it on the cross. Jesus dying and resurrecting from the dead dealt with your sin punishment that you so rightly deserved. But now you have been made alive in Christ. Enemies of the cross can be anyone who just elevates 
anything above Jesus' accomplished work. And it's not that you're not a believer. It's Paul's writing to the church. It's a reminder. Hey, stop it. Wake up. Some of you were sleeping and that woke you up. I can see you. That's the beauty of the cross, is that that is what we need every day. Why do you think he opened with, I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith? He continues in verse 20, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak, mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Sin, death, Satan, the powers of hell, suffering, pain, it will all be brought under his control. Nothing will be out of his control. Nothing is out of his control. Everything was made through him and for him. I read an article about a missionary who was interviewed, and they were talking about Jesus' return. And he, they said, well, what do you think Jesus is going to say when he returns? What do you think the first thing out of his mouth will be when he comes out and you know, he busts out of his clouds? And what is he, what is he going to say? And the, the missionary just simply responded, enough. I was like, that's an interesting phrase. But then he goes on to say, enough injustice. Enough abuse. Enough children dying of diseases that are perfectly preventable. Enough people starving to death. Enough of my friends dying of AIDS in hospitals. Enough of people not having clean water. Enough of greed. Enough. Everything will be under his control. That's why I don't think chapter 4, verse 1 should start this way. I think that this needs to be still part of chapter 3, but you know that's the whole number thing so we could all pay attention. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters... Stay true to the Lord. That therefore is a logical statement. Therefore is a, because you have just seen all of this, of who Jesus is, stay true to him. Love him with your heart. Love him with your life. Love him with your words. Love him when you're with people. Love him, with your by, love him when you're by yourself. Stay true to the Lord because he's worthy. Doesn't say that your performance is what is the basis. It's what Jesus has already performed and finished on the cross for you and I is what gives us that standing with him. Paul never motivates the church by giving them the law saying, shame on you. You should do this. You should do this. He says, remember who you are in Christ. Remember what you have been given. Therefore, remain true to the Lord. Um, Paul Tripp says this, and Isaac and, and the guys are going to come, and they're going to sing a song as a declaration, um, just from their generation, but hopefully over you guys as a reminder. But Paul Tripp says, grace is only exciting to sinful, weak, desperate people. I'm going to read that again. Grace is only exciting to sinful, weak, desperate people. See, the problem with Jesus' invitation in his day with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those religious folk was they had elevated themselves so high that they didn't see a need for him. 
They had elevated their works, their deeds, their ability to keep the law so high that they were worshiping themselves, making their no need for what Jesus did on the cross. And the invitation with grace is that I'm messed up. I can't do it. It's interesting that Paul calls the religious people to repent just as much as the sinners out there. He calls those of us that have been in religion for years, and unfortunately, being the longer you're in the church, the, lo- the, the easier it is to slip into being religious and going, everything is based on Jesus starting things, but I got to finish it. That's not the case. That's why grace is so amazing. Grace is only exciting to sinful, weak, desperate people.